It's been years since I've had uh, cable television, so I haven't been able to enjoy this experience that I used to have as a kid when I had cable television, which is something called To Be Continued. When everything's on Netflix, there's really no such thing as to be continued. Even shows that ended to be continued are really not to be continued because you just binge and you see what's happening next. You just go right to the next one. But I remember as a kid growing up in the 80s, running home from school to watch Transformers, and I remember there was this one time when Optimus Prime was destroyed, and I had to wait 24 hours to be continued to discover kids. You know, would Optimus Prime come back? Would I ever hear Autobots roll out again? Like, would that happen? It was a scary time, the 80s. I remember another time in the 80s, later in the 80s, it was like 86, 87, the end of the, uh, the, of the iconic series, The A-Team, which was only on once a week, which meant when they had to be continued, you didn't know for seven days if while they were locked in that barn, if there was enough scrap metal lying around and an old dusty arc welder that was going to enable them to turn a 1986 Chevy Malibu into a fully armored tank so that they could escape. You didn't know. You didn't know, church. It was to be continued. That's what it was like. Those of you who are, grew up in the 60s, right? If you remember the 60s, um, you know you had to tune in at the same bat time, same bat channel. Right? And those of you 70s kids, you're, the 70s kids are thankful that when the Fonz decided to jump the shark, that all happened in one episode. You didn't have to wait to see if Fonz was going to survive. You survived. To be continued. Whenever something is to be continued, it's a, it's, a, it's a device that is intended to make the audience ask the question, where is this narrative going? This is the Sunday after the Ascension. Thursday was Ascension Day, which historically speaking, the church has always celebrated the ascension of Christ, which took place 40 days after the resurrection. Easter Sunday, 40 days later, uh, Christ re- had resurrected and had re- appeared to witnesses for 40 days, and then he ascended on the, on, on the 40th day after the resurrection. And the church has historically celebrated this, and the book, I'm sorry, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are actually one book in two volumes. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. We call this a literary bifid. Kids, a literary bifid, if you look down in your notes, it means volume one, volume two. But it's volume one, volume two of the same narrative. And when the Gospel of Luke ends, it ends like to be continued. Christ's death, resurrection, his ascension, and then when you get to the text which I'm about to read this morning, which is Acts chapter one, our text for this morning is Acts chapter one, the first 11 verses, it feels very much like a to be continued. Luke's Gospel ends... Acts that we are about to read picks up the story, gives it a little bit more detail. There is an intentional literary overlap. In fact, if you were to read the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts all together, when you get to the text I'm about to read, just so I can give you context, it feels very much like previously on the Ascension. And it's supposed to. For practical reasons. Back then when you were writing on scrolls, and they, you know, they can only get so big, and so the Gospel of Luke ends, and so he starts another scroll called the book of Acts. And so we come to this, uh, this text today celebrating the ascension, and we're going to explore and consider the significance of this ascension, and we're going to ex- consider the, the significance of Christ's ascension in our lives and in our hearts today. Acts chapter 1, the first 11 verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with 
all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said all these things and they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood in them, stood with them in white robes. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. Now, kids, if you look down at your notes, I'm going to review something really quick. Luke's gospel reveals that salvation came through Christ's earthly ministry. And he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts, which is where we just picked it up, right, previously on the ascension. The book of Acts reveals that salvation continues to come through Christ. But it's through his heavenly ministry. By the power of the Holy Spirit through his church. And so before we get into the significance of this ascension... Let's just take a few minutes and consider why this is reasonable to believe. Because maybe you're here this morning, and you're exploring Christian faith, or you have questions, or maybe you've been in church for a very long time, but you have doubts. I was having a coffee with someone just two, about a week ago, two weeks ago, and, and one of the, thing, the questions they asked me was they were saying, you know, why should we believe this? Like, is this, isn't this just like a legend? You've got all these religious books, and the Bible is just one of them. So why should we believe that a human being died, rose from the grave, and then ascended into the clouds out of our sight? Is that reasonable to believe that? So let's just take a quick minute and, and, and explore this. And I talk about this a lot at, here at Redeemer, so I'm going to do it briefly. For, but for those of you who may be wondering, is this reasonable? The Gospels were written 40, between 40 to 50 years after Christ's um, in circulation, 40 to 50 years after Christ's death and resurrection. The letters of Paul were circulating 15 years, which means there was a lot of people alive, north of 500 people, according to the scriptures, 500 eyewitnesses of Jesus who was walking around revealing himself and declaring the good news of the gospel, which was that he came to forgive the sins uh, of humanity, and that if you place your faith and trust in him, then just as he rose from death and his death wasn't final, your death wouldn't be final. For 40 days, Jesus is preaching this gospel, and then he ascends. And we've got these, these documents that are in circulation while all these eyewitnesses were still alive. If I was to fabricate a story of something that took place 15 years ago, there's a whole lot of people that are still alive that could refute that tall tale. So when people say, well, the Bible's a legend, if you're a literary critic and you look at legends, and you look at how ancient legends were written, this is not how they were written. 
A couple examples of this would be when Jesus was carrying his cross, it says that a man from Cyrene named Simon carried the cross. And Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. That's a lot of detail. Okay? And when you examine ancient legendary literature, if you read Hesiod's Theogony, The Origins of the Gods, or if you read Homer's Iliad, you know, the, the, um, the, the elaborate tale of the Trojan War, right? Which was, a, which was like a, a true event that happened, but it's told in this glorious way, and there's all these glorious kind of exaggerations through this kind of story. When you look back, they're not comparable. Because ancient legend was not written like a man from Cyrene, from this town, who was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Whenever ancient writers wrote with that degree of detail, it's saying, you can fact check this. So the Bible doesn't fall into the same category of legend. As well, other religious um, works like uh, the Koran or the Book of Mormon or any other religious uh, writings, you've got, one, you've got one man sitting down writing and then saying, these writings are from God telling you the way to God. That's every religious scenario is like that. With Christianity, it's not a book, which my friend over coffee was like, well, it's just another book. And I'm like, but when you say book, you make it sound as though one person sat down and wrote it, and now we're supposed to believe it. The Bible was 40 different authors over span of, I mean, Abraham was 2100 BC, and we could go on and on about this. But my point is, that when you look back on human history, Christian faith is not just a spiritual claim, it's a historical claim. And Roman history attests to um, this claim as well. Why should we believe the resurrected Christ? That's a good question. But why would a Jew or a Greek or a Roman in the first century believe it? The Jews were raised to be told that God could not be a man and you don't worship a man and the Jews did not worship men. So why overnight were thousands of Jews Worshipping a man, the resurrected Christ. And the Greeks and the Romans were, were taught all of their uh, days that the goal of, of, uh, of spirituality was to leave the material. The material. You were supposed to leave the material and become the spiritual, the ethereal. That was good. So the idea that God would resurrect as a human being, the, the idea that God would come as a human and then resurrect himself not you know, as, a, as, as an energy orb floating around, but to actually resurrect and be human and say, can I have a piece of fish? I'm hungry, which Jesus said. No Roman would believe this. So before we talk about the glorious truths of the ascension, the reason why there are reasonable reasons to believe that it's true is because the way that this is written, the ancient world should have laughed at it. Rome, it should have been laughed out of Rome. But it wasn't laughed out of Rome. It exploded through Rome. And if you read Tacitus and Josephus, two Roman historians, they'll tell you it was exploding through Rome. Why was it exploding through Rome? Why overnight did people change their whole paradigms? It's because there were over 500 eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Christ. And his empty tomb was making a proclamation to them that was pretty good news. They were willing to die, not for a hoax. They were willing to die because they were proclaiming the news that the one who claimed to be God who rose from the grave did. And under Nero, when times were incredibly, uh, incredibly uh, difficult, they were willing to die for that truth, not a hoax. And then three generations later, under Diocletian, when there was global persecution of the, of, of the Christians throughout Rome, under Diocletian, it was worse than it was under Nero. And the grandbabies of the Christians were still willing to be persecuted. 
You know, there's no youth group exciting enough that you're willing to die for it. Okay? There's not enough smoke and lights and big jumbotrons in the world that you would be willing to die for that. There's only one thing that's worth dying for, and it's if you believe that death isn't final. And the only reason to believe that death isn't final is over 500 eyewitnesses ran around saying, the one who, the one who said he rose from the grave did, and death is actually not final. So these are some reasonable things throughout human history to consider why we should believe in this ascension. So now having said that, let's look at this text. Let's unpack it. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. It's this. Christ's ascension has personal significance for us. It enables Christ to continue his saving work through us, and it has eternal implications to re-envision us. So kids, if you look down at your notes, you'll find those three things. It has significance for us, it enables Christ to continue his saving work through us, and it has internal implications to re-envision us. So first, let's look at look about the significance. What is the significance of it? Why is it significant? It creates great hope. The image of the ascension, the way it's written there, Jesus going through the clouds, it's supposed to make us, uh, the readers, the original readers of that text, think about a coronation ceremony. So the Greek word for up is apero. And it's, this, it's not just directional from here to there. The Greek word up, it does mean from here to there, but it also means to be exalted. So when it says Christ ascended, Christ went up, it's not just first he came down and then he went up. It's not directional. This is about authority. It's supposed to invoke in the mind a coronation ceremony. Think about it. Jesus' whole life was humiliation. What is this? Exaltation. Jesus' whole life was tragedy. What is this? Glory. What is this picture? The significance of the ascension is that in Jesus Christ, all tragedy, all suffering, everything that makes you cry is not going to end in a box six feet in the ground. It's going to end in glory and resurrection, not darkness, but life in God. So the ascension is that Christ went up. He ascended. It's supposed to make us think about that. If you, um, if you watch The Crown, you'd see them reenact uh, the coronation ceremony. And, and uh, you know, there is a coronation throne, a coronation uh, chair, sorry. And uh, back in um, 1296, this coronation chair was made for King Edward, and it was brought over from Scotland. And if you visit England, you can go see it. Now, if you kids were to go on a holiday with your parents, and your parents said, oh, look, it's the coronation throne. And you said, wow, I'm going to go sit in that. You could go up. I mean, you couldn't. (laughs) But if you somehow fought your way past the guards, if you were to go up and sit on the throne of England, that wouldn't make you the king or the queen of England. All it would mean is you went from here to there. But you have no real authority. And then, incidentally, you'd be arrested. But, you mean, you... You just went from here to there. The the story of the ascension is not just about Christ going from here to there. This is about authority. He ascended and he sat down at the right hand of the the Father. And he's been given this glorious cosmic authority as the king. as As the prophet, the priest, and the king. He's the prophet in the sense that he's the fulfillment of all of God's word. And he's God's final word. He's the fulfillment of all prophecy. Jesus Christ. He's the king in the sense that he's ruling in all authority over us. And he's our priest because his ministry isn't over. It's just over on earth. And his, his ministry continues as our high priest 
in the heavenlies, seated on the throne for us. So there's great significance. It's, it's, um, it's significant because when God created us, and when God created this earth, he created it to be this glorious reflection of heaven in the same way that the sky is reflected off a sea of glass. You go to the lake, you're having a beach day with your family, the lake is very still, there's not even a ripple on it, and if it's a clear day, it's amazing, and everybody takes pictures because you can see the sky and the water. That was what God intended in creation, that the earth would be, things would be on earth as they are in heaven. That's why we're instructed to pray that way, right? And that was what God intended to be, that was what God created to be, but of course, God created everything in, cre- in perfection. Our sin brought damnation. So God came in Christ to provide redemption. And now Jesus ascending here is the promise that there's going to be restoration. Because the end of the text that we just read in verse 11 said he's going to return the same way that he he left. So it's not that he went up directionally as much as that he went through. So in the Greek, up through the clouds is not not necessarily meaning like he was higher and higher and higher and higher until he was a little dot. And then, you know, if you went high enough, you might still see him. No, that's not what it's trying to get us to believe. It's not asking us to believe this is spatial. It's that he went through. It's that he is in the realm of God. That on the the throne of God, in the realm of God, the resurrected human Jesus is in the realm of God, in his glorified state, giving us hope that our death is not the end. So this is the significance of of all of this. It means that we've got this guaranteed access now, because he's in the throne room. The ascension is significant because uh, without him, the prince of darkness would just continually be bringing up your darkness. And he'd have a case. Because if I was to have a line up here that said, if you think you're a pretty good person, stand in it, most of us would probably stand in it. Because we would use human terms. We'd say, well, I haven't killed anyone. You know, there's a high bar. Um, you know, I haven't stolen anything. There's a high bar. You know, these are, these are the standards that we have when we talk about good people. They pay their taxes. They're good. They're, you know, they're not cheating. They're not, you know, they were good people. So we stand, yeah, we're good people. By our standard of good. The problem is that the standard of the creator of the universe is perfection and holiness, not because he's just a cosmic perfectionist, but because there's no darkness in him. So if I said, hey, who thinks they're a pretty good person? You'd stand in the line. But if I had another line and I said, who thinks their heart is perfectly pure? You don't have an impure thought. You don't have an impure deed. You don't have an impure word. Everything you ever think and do perpetually is perpetually and personally perfect and good and loving and la 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 stand right here. No one would stand in it. No Christian, no Muslim, no atheist. No one would stand in that line unless they're utterly delusional. And if you're going to talk to me after the service, well, well, I would stand in that line. I'll cast the devil out of you. Nobody would stand in that line. We would only stand in a line that says we're kind of good by comparison. I can think of someone worse than me. I'm not that bad, so I'm good, and God should be happy with that. The significance of the ascension is that Christ hands all of his perfection at the cross, the perfect life that we never lived, that we should have lived, is given to us, imputed to us, the righteousness that we are clothed in, and now he, the advocate is fighting for us in the throne room of heaven so that every time the devil tries to point out your darkness, our king on the throne has something to say about that. And what he has to say about it is, it is finished. The price for their darkness has been paid. 
There is no double jeopardy. Their verdict is innocent, not guilty. And so you and I live our lives with this radical assurance, because our hope is in Christ, that all of our sin is forgiven because we have an advocate who ascended. That's the significance of ascension. Think about it. If you're a disciple, Christ appears to you after he resurrects, and you're thinking, whoa, wasn't expecting that. Man, this is a game changer. Our best guy is back. Let's take Rome. Which is precisely where they go in verse 6, right? Hey, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They're immediately, they're immediately back on it. It's such an honest question that we're going to explore it in a second. Because we kind of do the same thing. We shrink God down. But this is the great significance of our high priest being there in the throne room of heaven pleading our case. I think I told this story, but I'm going to mention it again just so you see the significance of Christ ascending and being in all authority but the, but the judge being your justifier, being the one on the throne. I think I've told this story before, but years ago when I was coaching football, I was coaching Isaiah's team, and Isaiah had the opportunity, the team had the, to play at the Rogers Center before a CFL game. We were a little bit late. We got there late. Isaiah is in his full football uniform, helmet included, and Isaiah was uh, uh, such a cute little football player, so intense, he always had his mouth guard in, even when he wasn't on the field, because you never know when you have to hit somebody. So he just, he always had his mouth guard in, and we're running into the Rogers Center, and Isaiah's running beside me, he's got his cleats on, running through the parking lot, clickety-clack, clickety-clack, I'm running, I've got my full uh, coaching uniform on, and when we get to the gate that is players only, You know, the security guards didn't even ask me a question. They just opened the doors and we ran right through. They didn't stop me. I ran from the parking lot onto the field with my son. From the parking lot onto the field in the Rogers Center with all the stand. I ran right onto the field with him and nobody asked me a question. Why? Because of how we were clothed. Right? He had the helmet of salvation, the shoulder pads of righteousness. Okay, do you get the picture? It's how you're clothed. It's who you're clothed in. They didn't stop me and say, whoa, 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 whoa. What are his yards per carry? How many touchdowns has he scored this season? How well is he doing exactly? Because on the basis of his record, we'll see if he gets to get in or not. They didn't ask any questions. They just, yep, that's the appropriate clothing. You're in. They didn't ask me, are you a good coach? Are you a lousy coach? How's the team doing? Are you going to make the playoffs this year? They just took one look at my uniform and they just opened the door. That's the significance of the ascension for you. Because in and of yourself, none of you deserve that the door be open. Nobody starting with this preacher deserves that the door be open, but it'll be open. Because Christ ascended. This is the glorious picture of the gospel. Here's the second thing. Kids, if you look down at your notes, it says Christ's ascension and enabled him to continue his ministry through us. Well, how does he continue his ministry through us? We become these witnesses. Now, there's something pretty striking here. Before Jesus says, go, he says, don't go. In verse 4, Jesus says, now don't go anywhere. What could possibly be so important that Jesus would say, don't do the Great Commission. Until this happens, then do the Great Commission. Don't go. Something has to occur. Then go. And of course, it is that his exit brings the entrance of the Holy Spirit in power. I'm going to tell you why this is such good news. 
Because the Holy Spirit coming into all of us who place our faith in Christ and we're being fully uh, filled with the Spirit upon the regeneration of the Spirit in our baptism and through our profession of faith, okay, the fullness of the Spirit brings us into a relationship with God. Romans teaches us that it's because of the Spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father. In other words, if you, if you are full of the Spirit, God is your Father. If you're not full of the Spirit, God is not your Father. You're either full or not full. You're either in Christ or out. God's your Father or He's not. There's no kind of escalating scale of spirituality. By, it's the Spirit is either upon us or He's not upon us. And I have good news, church. If your faith is in Christ, the Spirit is fully upon you. So Jesus says, don't go, then go. And the significance of that is because if the Spirit never came, if Jesus said, guys, my work is done. I'm passing the baton to you now. And he, he's gone. You would all be pretty burdened. Because then my sermon today would have to be, church, Jesus isn't here anymore. You know who is? You. And then, next thing you know, it's like, all of your neighbors, all of your family members, everyone at work, everyone you walk by when you leave Redeemer this afternoon. Don't go out for lunch. You're walking by people. you got to stop. It's all on you. It's not on you. I'm going to tell you something. And, and don't think I'm about to go to this place where we just sit around and, and do nothing because that's not true either. But the significance of this is that Jesus saying, don't go, then go, means I'm still going to do all the saving. I accomplished salvation by the power of the Spirit on my cross. And I'm going to continue to do salvation through the power of the Spirit through my church. But guess who's doing the saving? Not you, not me, Christ. Through us. So you and I are now liberated with great boldness to know. That as we are bold to be witnesses, it isn't us that do the saving. The responsibility and the burden is not on our shoulders, but it has always been on Christ. It has always been on his preeminent shoulders. Jesus saying, giving them the great commission to go out in the power of the Holy Spirit, is not him saying, I'm, I am now absolved of the responsibility of salvation, and you have the responsibility of salvation. Is that he's always had the responsibility of salvation. He's the only one capable of salvation. And so he gives this glorious encouragement to his church, and he says, you're going to be witnesses. And so the ascension uh, makes us participants. It makes us these able ministers. We are witnesses of the love that undoes death. And he doesn't. And it's such good news. It's such incredibly good news. I mean, what did that look like? When the early church went out throughout the first century Rome and actually did this, when you study church history, what did that look like? Did it look like an army of eloquent preachers and orators? Not even close. So go and be witnesses is not like you all have to go and now somehow be, be, be public speakers and orators. When you look at what, what actually happened, the greatest preacher in all of history, is the church. It's not the guys in the pulpits. It's all of us being these witnesses. What do we find? We don't find an army of eloquent preachers. We find spirit-filled witnesses who had rest 
in a world that was at great unrest. They gave a defense for their hope in a world that was clamoring for hope. We have rest in a world that's at rest. We have hope in a world where people are constantly clamoring to tiny little shiny things, hoping that they give them hope, and the dumb thing breaks and they got to go get another one. This is the world that we live in. We have hope that transcends suffering. We have hope that transcends death itself. The, the, the significance of the ascension is we relate completely differently to this world that we're, living, that we're living in. He continues his ministry through us. And the good news in all of this, the good news of you and I being full with the power of the Holy Spirit, is that God used the simple stammering lips of the early church, and he'll use the simple stammering lips of this church. He has always done that, and he will do it in this city, and he will do it through us. Men, women, student, kids, in this city that we will baptize into faith in Christ, who God will save through us, he will do it. That's not a burden on you, that's not a burden on me, he will do it. And, we, and this all flows and stems from us resting in the glorious implications of what we've been given. And from that great rest, there comes that great boldness to go. And so, the final thing this morning, kids, if you look back down at your notes, the third thing there, it says that Christ's ascension, it has eternal implications that re-envision us. And that word, re-envision, means that you see everything in a different way. If, if, uh, if this morning, for uh, Thumbs Up Sunday, you know, Sunday after ascension, if we said, you know, um, everybody, kids, uh, go see Shar. she's got your sermon outlines, and Shar also has a bag of sunglasses so put your sunglasses on for the sermon this morning, because this sermon's in, you know, gospel definition. You got to put, and, and all you kids put sunglasses on and they all had blue lenses. What color would I be? If you put on sunglasses, kids, and your sunglasses had blue lenses, what color would I be? Shout it out. I'd be blue. In fact, everything you looked at would be blue. Because everything would be colored. And the gospel is the lens through which we see life. The gospel is the lens through which we see suffering. The gospel is the lens through which we see everything. The gospel is the lens through which we see provision. The gospel is the lens through which we see relationships. It, it, just, it just changes everything. And so it re-envisions us. It re-envisions the church. And now notice what happens. In verse 6, when Jesus says what's going to happen, the power of the Spirit's going to come, the disciples say in verse 6, hey, will you restore the kingdom of Israel? Because immediately they have a very significant problem. A significant problem called Rome. But we find that God was not actually um, able to be shrunk down to, to that significant problem called Rome. God was actually dealing with a global humanity's ultimate problem called death. And when we rest in the implications of a risen Savior... We look at our significant problems differently. Because our significant problems have really already been answered by God dealing with our ultimate problem definitively. See, you and I have significant problems. And I have coffee with like everyone in this room, you know, throughout the course of the year. Like we're hanging out and we're somehow connecting with people and 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 we all have, nobody's coming in this room without a significant problem. For some of you, it's health. It's the frustration of that. It's, it's so angering. For, me, for many of you, that's what it is. 
or you're the spouse of one who is, who is and, and it's so frustrating, there's nothing you can do. For others of you, it's not that. It's relationships. It's marriages that have been broken or are strained. It's children that are estranged. For some of you, it's provision. You're working hard. You're being faithful. You're crossing all the T's. You're dotting all the I's. You're checking all the boxes. And, and, and uh, your career is not working out well. The stresses of your business are keeping you awake at night. Significant problems. And the only rest there is for significant problems that you can't just go and fix by writing a check or by doing something, you can't fix it, is to dial back, which is why God is gloriously the Lord of rest, given us a command every seven days. He commands us to rest. Stop working. Stop it. Stop toiling. Stop trying to figure it out. Stop reading. Stop strategizing. Just stop. And stare at the sky until you feel so small, there's rest comes upon you like a wave as you revel in his greatness. But he has already solved your ultimate problem definitively, which thoroughly transforms the way we look at our difficult problems, you know, that are that are significant. And his comfort is there. We've got this high priest. A God who understands our suffering, who is with us in suffering, who ministers his grace to us in suffering, who then, in a radical, uh, you know, turn of events, turns those of us who actually are suffering into ministers to a world that is suffering. Because unlike them, we have hope that is pervasive in our suffering. That transcends it all. And this is what he has done. And this is the glory of it. And in verse 11 at the end, it teaches us that Christ will return as he came. I remember being a kid in church. I've talked about this before. And heaven was so boring to me. It was always talked about in these small, lame ways. I, it was, you know, I remember some things you know, stick in your mind, you know, because we all have church horror stories. You know, and I... I remember being a kid and a preacher took a verse out of Revelation where it says that there's... It's apocalyptic literature, by the way. It's poetic, and most of it is not supposed to be taken literally. It's all supposed to be taken seriously, but you don't take apocalyptic literature literally. And this preacher took it literally, and he was like, there's 24 elders around the throne, and they're just saying, holy, holy, holy for all of eternity, and one day, church, that'll be us, and we'll all be, you know, around the throne for all of eternity saying, holy, holy, holy. And I'm a kid going like, I don't want to go... Uh, I don't want to say it out loud because all the amens around me, people are like totally into this, but I don't want to do that. You know? And I'm like, I don't want to go. And my, my paradigm of heaven as a kid was, it's like, if you die as a baby, then you get a diaper and a crossbow. And if you die as an adult, you get a, ro- you get a bathrobe because everybody in heaven has bathrobes because that's what the Easter presentations taught me. So my ideas of heaven was like, I don't want to go. But if you look back at Genesis chapter 1, which is how this whole thing began, which is what God intended at the beginning, which is what the ascension of Christ promises he's returning, what do you have at the beginning? God doesn't form Adam from the ground. So kids, you should be really excited about what I'm about to tell you because that's not close to heaven. God forms Adam from the ground, and what does Adam do? What does God say to Adam? Say holy, holy, holy for all of eternity to me. Behold, I have created you. Worship me, minion. 
And Adam's there naked. Oh, holy, holy, holy. Uh, holy, holy, holy. That's not the beginning of the book. And I'm not being facetious. I'm just trying to shatter some paradigms here about the, the implications of the ascension and Christ's return. God says to Adam, have everything, enjoy everything, be fruitful, multiply, have children, cultivate civilization. Create a world that is so majestic, full of love and innovation and ingenuity and just a testament of the majesty of God that just images him and just have that multiply globally. That's what God wanted. What do you think he's restoring? That. What is heaven? It is, what is heaven? It is Jesus Christ, the one who has ascended, coming back the way that he came. Verse 11. Returning from the realm of God to this realm where he will restore all things, where he will restore us, where those of us who are dead, when that happens, are raised to glorified bodies, where what will we do? Cultivate civilization and enjoy life in God in a world that is devoid of oppression and injustice and racism and suffering and sexism and death. Every, all suffering in every form will be eradicated and all of the beautiful things that you actually enjoy about being a human, because this world is a paradox, full of glorious and beautiful things, those things of God, that image God, they will be restored to perfection. The story of the, story of the ascension and the return of our Lord is that he is coming to restore all things. And I close with this church as we pray. The Lord of creation is the Lord of recreation. He created everything in perfection by grace, And he's restored everything. uh, He's redeeming everything by his grace. And his ascension means that the Holy Spirit descended to empower you by his grace for the here and now. And he will will return to restore all things. Let's close and let's pray.